0: Coming up on Tech Nation, it's a global world and a surprising one at that. Adam Minter talks about secondhand travels in the new global garage sale. You'll be surprised where your thrift store contributions can end up. Then in biotech, former University of Southern California professor Bob Ladner moved his cancer research group from the beaches of Santa Monica to Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's the CEO of CV6 Therapeutics, and they're looking to make a chemotherapy used by millions of cancer patients each year better. All this and more coming up in this week's Tech Nation.
1: Take 5 with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, ESPN investigative journalist Mark Feinaru Wada talks about the incidence of repeated brain trauma to professional football players. In journalism, we ask, what did you know? When did you know it and what did you do when you found out? That in a nutshell reflects his book League of Denial, the NFL concussions and the battle for truth.
2: Yeah, it is. That's I mean when when Steve and I set out to sort of embark on this project, that was exactly what we we sort of were after was what did the NFL know and when did it know it? Um We were struck to find out that they'd known a lot for two decades, really, and and seemed to, rather than embrace the the science, um, in many cases seemed to bury it. As as scientists emerged, sort of raising warnings to them about the connection between football and possible brain damage, I think it's interesting. There was a lot of... Incredibly good reporting that had been done over the years on this topic, for sure. And, and um, you know, the, the New York Times had done some fantastic work. Colleagues of ours at ESPN, um, GQ had done a couple of fantastic pieces on the subject. But it really wasn't until 2010 when Congress actually got involved in the process, called the NFL to the Hill, and really raked them over the coals. It's that point, I think, that the level of awareness really ratchets up. And then I, I think for us, what was interesting was to see that while you had all this reporting that had been done, there was so much out there that hadn't really been focused on around about what the NFL actually knew, when it knew it, and how it had dealt with that information once it had it.
0: Well, I was so surprised to hear that they had a mild traumatic brain injury committee since 1994.
2: That year is called the year of the concussion in the NFL. There's a number of high-profile players who have concussions. A couple of players have retired prematurely because of concussions. So there's a large sort of growing sense of awareness around concussions in the NFL. And at, at one point during that time, the commissioner of the league, Paul Tagliabu, is at the, the 92nd Street Y in New York. He's being interviewed by the fantastic journalist David Halberstam. Halberstam starts asking him about this issue of concussions in football. And there's just a great scene where Tagliabue basically dismisses it entirely, and he says, "So this is a media-created issue. This is really not a problem." And he starts sort of trotting out statistics that the NFL has that there's maybe one concussion every three games. And Halberstam stops him in the middle, And, and Halberstam has come back from Vietnam and covering and hearing the press, you know, get fed these statistics about Vietnam, and he and he. Gives this line about feeling like he's back in in Vietnam, hearing the numbers from uh, um from the from the there U.S. Are that military many people in
0: the country. It can't yeah, be yes, true. <laughs> yeah. and and
2: he, there's just roars at the 92nd Street Y. But that's the context in which this MTBI committee is formed, and you know the commissioner puts the head of that committee, uh, a gentleman named Elliot Pellman, and that really reflects his attitude in that meeting with Halberstam, and then appointing this guy Elliot Pellman, who is not at all a specialist in brains. He's
0: a a rheumatologist. He's a
2: rheumatologist, exactly. And so that, I think, reflected the mentality of the league at the time, when it went after this issue of concussions in the sport. This committee ended up producing 16 different research papers on the issue of concussions in the NFL. And for a period of time, they produced a couple of papers that were well-received in the research community. But eventually, that committee, once it got to paper number three, suddenly began to produce a series of papers that sent the message that concussions were not a big deal in the NFL. And time and time again, every paper they produced sent that message. And the interesting thing about all of that research was it ended up in one singular journal. The editor in chief of that journal was a guy named Mike Apuzzo, a neurosurgeon from USC who also happened to be a consultant to the New York Giants football team. So you had this guy working with the NFL Letting papers be published time and time again that we're saying concussions are not a big deal in the NFL.
0: This 2013 Tech Nation interview with ESPN investigative journalist Mark Finaruata featured his book League of Denial, the NFL, concussions and the battle for truth. For his reporting, Mark went on to receive a George Polk Award, the Dick Shapp Award for Outstanding Journalism, and the Associated Press Sports Editor Award. League of Denial was made into a frontline documentary, which itself was awarded a Peabody. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes.
1: Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Adam Minter a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, focusing on China, technology, and the environment. He's here today with Second Hand, travels in the new global garage sale. Then in biotech, Bob Ladner, the CEO of CV6 Therapeutics, tells us why his cancer research group from the University of Southern California and the sunny beaches of Santa Monica found that moving it to Belfast, Northern Ireland, was a great idea. And now, Adam Minter. Well, Adam, welcome to Tech
3: Nation. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: I'm glad you're here, too. And I do have a confession, and I'm pretty ashamed of it. Every so often, I kind of wake up in the morning, and it nags at me. But I haven't fully cleaned out my garage in five years. Partially, yes, but not fully. And I assume I'm not alone.
3: No, in fact, you're doing pretty good. You're doing better than most Americans uh, by the the limited amount of data we have. Um, if you go into Southern California and you start going through garages there, we have data showing that well over half the garages there can't hold cars anymore because there's so much stuff in them. So if you cleaned out your garage in the last five years, it means you probably can get a car in there. And you <laughs> Two. There you go. And as a result, you're doing better than most of the people in Los Angeles. So congratulations.
0: Well, I got to tell you, I'm not going to wake up to that nagging thought anymore, but I still got to clean it out.
3: Yeah, we all do.
0: We all do. Now in San Francisco, we have so many people moving here and moving between apartments and into new homes, um, and they go out to Craigslist, and they get rid of the stuff they want to move out and get more appropriate stuff. In fact, big on Craigslist, moving around, baby furniture. Sure, or That stuff must be through 50 babies before it's, before it's gone swings and cribs and all kinds of stuff. But then there's the stuff that the locals don't want, and they roll it right down to
3: One thrift store or another. Mm -hmm. What
0: happens then?
3: Well, you know, the hard truth is that if you can't give it away on Craigslist or sell it on Craigslist they're probably going to have a hard time giving it away or selling it at the thrift store. And, you know, the, the rough data shows that roughly only one-third of the stuff that goes on the shelves at a thrift store, a donation-based thrift store like Salvation Army or Goodwill, actually sells off those shelves. It's a very, very low percentage. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one, there's just so much stuff. And there's more people donating than there are people who want to buy. Uh, the second reason is is quality. Um, we all know this. They don't make it like they used to, and the quality of the stuff that's out there is declining pretty quickly, Um, and there's good data on that, um, you know, within businesses who have, you know, actually watched this, and as a result, again, it's something that's going to end up in a landfill, but the stuff that, it's not to say that it's a completely bleak situation, there is a vast market for used stuff around the world, and the stuff that doesn't sell on the shelves, more often than not, can end up in places that you wouldn't expect it,
0: Okay, so I give my clothes away. Are those mostly sold, or are there good clothes versus bad clothes?
3: There's good clothes versus bad clothes. I mean, uh, if you buy fast fashion, I don't know if you do, but say you... Fast fashion? Fast fashion. Forever 21, for example, you know, is very low quality. Um, I
0: feel forever 21. There Does we that go. Count?
3: I I <laughs> like to say I feel forever 21. Um, but these are, these are garments that say last one to five washes. oh yeah those are bad those Those are are bad bad, yeah and and that's the kind of stuff that gets donated to Goodwill and to the Salvation Army and the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and all of these organizations, and oftentimes ends up being disposed of, to put it politely, because there simply isn't a market for it in San Francisco, uh, in Indianapolis, anywhere, or for that matter, in the great secondhand clothing markets abroad, whether they're in Mexico, in India, in Kenya, any of these places, people know better. It's gone
0: past their useful life, if You, you will. Well,
3: yeah, because the useful life is very, short. But if you have good quality stuff, um, it's going to find its way to somebody who wants it. That person might be somebody who buys it off the rack in San Francisco. If it doesn't sell off the rack in San Francisco, that doesn't mean its life is over. It can be repackaged and sent abroad. And there will almost certainly be a market for it there.
0: Now we get to the contributions that are. I'm always a little iffy about because what happens to them It's electronics, Mm -hmm. TVs, computers, phones. I mean, we have built a bunch of stuff here that was never designed, never engineered to come apart into some essential elements.
3: Right. Well, and that becomes a very complex story. So, you know, if you're going to donate your electronics to a Goodwill, um, they're going to test them, first of all, and they're going to make sure they're working. And then they're going to take a look at what vintage it is. If it's an iPhone, say, from the last three years, that's merchandise. You know'll and, and sell it they'll sell it you know where things uh, start getting more tricky is say you've got a desktop from eight nine years ago. there's not a market in North America for that anymore, and so goodwill will actually have actually has partnerships with like Dell Computer and Dell makes sure that the stuff gets diverted into good recycling programs and is handled safely but not all of your electronics go to the standard charities like the Goodwills and the Salvation Armies. Some of them are donated to electronics recyclers or sold to electronics recyclers who will then evaluate them differently and they're going to evaluate them on what their potential is for reuse and oftentimes repair overseas in markets that have a lower price point and a desire to get hold of technology so you can bridge the digital divide. So in this book for example I followed electronics to Ghana and I started out in Vermont with a electronics recycler there by the name of Robin Ingenthron and he works with an importer from Ghana a Ghanaian American By the name of Wahab Odoi Muhammad. And Wahab buys, he likes to buy pretty much anything, but he'll buy flat panel screens. He'll buy laptops. He'll buy desktops. He'll buy phones. Um, He also buys cars, which is another story. We'll get to there. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to there. And he brings them to Ghana. And these are Devices that would never be used in North America. But in Ghana, there's a desire for that lower price point, a good quality device. An iPhone is going to be better than some of the off label Chinese phones, for example, that are imported new into there, and it will have a much longer effective life than what you see in North America. So, an extreme example that I document in the book is a television repairman in a place called Savalugu, which is a small town in northern Ghana. When I came across him, he was working on on a 35-, 40-year-old tube television, and he was repairing it. And that television would never have lasted 35, 40 years in the United States. It wasn't designed to be repaired that long. But there is a desire to keep these things going. The income level is low enough where there's the incentive to do it, and they've developed the skills, and it's extraordinary. And so, you know, I know there's a real stigma to exporting electronics overseas, but, you know, I wanted to tell the other side of the story, which is that there are people who really want these things and will keep them in use longer than they would be used, say, in the United States.
0: Well, I know there are some people out there saying, oh, that's fascinating, but. Hey, where's
3: Ghana? (laughs) Right, right. West Africa. So it's in West Africa. Do you fly directly into Ghana? Uh, Well, let's see. I live in Malaysia, so uh, when I go to Ghana, I usually go through Dubai, and then you get a direct flight to Accra, which is the uh, capital of Ghana. So, you know, you can actually get a direct flight, I believe, from JFK, and I think there's also one from uh, Logan in Boston uh, to Ghana. Uh, You can go actually fly direct to Accra. I don't think you can fly direct from the West Coast, but, but it's a thriving, you know, nation. It's got one of the fastest growing economies in all of Africa, and it also has a thriving tech sector. And what's exciting about that tech sector is it reminds me what I saw in China in the early 2000s. It's initially, at least, being built off used stuff coming in from Europe, coming in from the United States, some of it coming in from Japan, and increasingly even used stuff coming in from China. That's the first taste that a lot of these entrepreneurs and software developers have of technology. And they will develop and they'll stop using secondhand at some point. But right now, that's their gateway. And it's 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 fantastic.
0: You mentioned that uh, the computers get sold off to or sent off to Dell, however the relationship is. And Dell puts them into good recycling programs. What's the difference between a good one and a bad one?
3: Sure. Well... You know, in some sense, I'm a kind of a recycling radical. I think all recycling programs, if it reaches that point, are probably good on some level. But for Dell, what they want, because they're a major corporation, they don't want to be embarrassed, a good recycling program for Dell is something that is going to be environmentally sound that's not going to put people at risk. So we've all seen the videos, say, of circuit boards being, quote-unquote, cooked in emerging market nations. They're, They're literally boiled over acid baths, and then the gold is extracted, and I've seen this up close and personal. The fumes are atrocious. It's just not good for anybody. Dell isn't going to send um, Goodwill's computers to that kind of operation. They're going to follow the supply chain. Um, A lot of it's going to flow into Europe. A lot of it's going to flow into Belgium, where the precious metals are recovered, in very high-tech facilities there. Um, Dell has actually partnered, um, and I'm not sure of the status of it right now, but it was working on precious metals recycling um, plants in Dallas, partnering with a company called Wistron. And so that's what they want. And they were also ex exporting and it's become more difficult recently, but they were also exporting some of the plastics to China. And they had partnered up again there to build one of the most modern and best plastics recycling facilities in the world. And they were actually recycling those plastics that were coming in um, from Goodwills in the U.S. uh, into new plastics that would then be put into new Dell. So it was very exciting.
0: We always think of global trade as all these things coming together to sell it to us. Yeah. And then it's like, wait a minute, there's global trade after it leaves you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, reverse supply chains and forward supply chains. And and increasingly, you know, I think there's a tendency in, in the United States and Europe to, to center the global economy on us, but that's not the way it works anymore. And, you know, as somebody who's lived in Asia for 20 years, I mean, one of the biggest changes I've seen is that these supply chains are now not centered entirely on the United States. They're flowing between Southeast Asia and China or Africa and Southeast Asia and China or Africa to the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And maybe mean not they
0: don't come here first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's,
3: it's very complicated.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. And my guest today is Adam Minter. He's a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and his writing focuses on China, technology and the environment. He's here today with secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale okay so i'm I'm going to get rid of my car. I either trade it to the dealer, I donate it to my favorite charity, and we're not talking about selling it outright to somebody else, just an individual buyer. What happens to my car in those first two
3: cases so very quickly, an evaluation is made of its value. Can it be reused that is can it still run? And if it can run, uh, that charity is going to try and find the most profitable place to sell it. Not many charities sell directly into the export market, um, but the export market is a very key part of the U.S. automobile recycling system. And cars that may look like they're not merchandise in the United States, just like computers that may not look like they're merchandise in the United States, can be shipped overseas. And I've seen this done in the Bronx, actually, um, where there are actual shipping yards designed to export cars to West Africa and it will be sent overseas and overseas, say in Africa, it will be reconditioned, repaired, oftentimes taken apart entirely and reconditioned because the cost of doing so is so low in these places that it makes sense. And it's an interesting business because one of the great outlets for what are called accident cars or insurance cars, claims cars, is the export market. What's an accident car? Say you had an accident in your new... Chevy, whatever. And the insurance company says, this is going to be too expensive to repair in the United States. It's
0: been totaled. Well, no it has. It's like, It's been totaled. Here's your check.
3: Yeah, here's your check. That car is not going to be recycled. That car is going to then go on to an online auction where anybody, anywhere in the world can bid on it, primarily in North America. People will buy it and export it overseas on the assumption that they can repair it for cheap. And if you go to these export yards, like the one I visited in the Bronx and describe in the book, you'll see these beat up cars and they aren't just the cars that are being exported. The parts to fix them are stuffed inside these cars and they'll be shipped. To wherever they're going, say Lagos, Nigeria, or wherever it is, and when they get there, the labor is cheap enough and the market is strong enough that you can actually repair these things and put them back on the road.
0: So you might have new carburetors, new fenders, new uh, shoved in the car and, and, and you would shipped be, with them, one packet. And Kit. you
3: would be astounded at the at the the ingenuity of the mechanics in these West African countries. And it's it's something that you know we're kind of familiar with here in the United States as well. We've long you know sort of looked up to Cuban mechanics who can keep those very old. Cars going on those roads or Mexican mechanics. So we've seen this to an extent already. Um, but what we, I think a lot of Americans don't really appreciate is that how, uh, how many of these cars are actually being shipped to Africa and reused there. Now, if a car can't be fixed, um, there is a very well established recycling system in the United States. The cars are sent to uh, automobile recyclers who shred them. In giant machines that can be as large as 10,000 horsepower, and you have giant hammers that can weigh 500 pounds apiece, spin at very high speed, and the car is fed in, and out comes fist-sized chunks of metal, plastic, and anything else that a car is made of. And there's various technologies that separate out these components into their individual commodities, and then they can be recycled into new cars, and you know, new electronics, and all kinds of uh, different products.
0: Now. Are small appliances, do they fit in the same category as the electronics and the phones and the computers?
3: Uh, by small appliances, are you saying like... But
0: my toaster.
3: Oh, your toaster. Sure, they can be. I mean, uh, but a lot of that stuff sort of is in this middle ground, especially in the sort of the imaginations of consumers who say, well, I, I don't recycle my toaster, do I? But in fact, you can. Um, and you, if you send it to your electronics recycler, they will do with it what they will do with an old laptop that they judge can't be um, resold as reusable, and that is they'll shred it. And, you know, recycling, a lot of the way recycling is done is just that. It's shredded, and then you use magnets and eddy currents and other technologies to separate it out. It's the most cost-effective way of doing it. I mean, you know, if you had that old toaster say, in a place like, you know, uh, Indonesia, um, it would likely, somebody would try and figure out how to repair it, and if they couldn't repair it, they would take a screwdriver out and individually hand-separate the various metals and and plastic materials there. But that's not cost-effective in a place like it the United States, where labor is very expensive, so that's why shredding is done here. Your
0: TED talk, which is fascinating, because it took what was it? Was it taking old Christmas tree lights? Right. And, they, and they had made an entire machine where they threw bunches of them in at a time and ground them up, and mm-hmm. and the gold went somewhere, and the glass the went somewhere, yeah, the, the copper. copper rather went somewhere, and the, and it was like. You kind of could see this bed was kind of moving and yeah. water was... And it was like, what is this? It, it, it
3: was, it's an ingenious system. And in some ways, um, it's not because it relies on some very old principles, which is just specific gravity. Some things are heavier than others. And that's how we pan for gold. You know, and you, you wash it around and, and the gold goes in one direction. I mean, the, that's, what, that's why you're swishing a gold pan. Right, exactly. You know, the gold is heavier and it, it's left behind and the sand sort of just washes away. I mean, the way these Christmas tree lights... Recycling systems work is you take a bunch of christmas tree lights throw them into a shredder you get you know sort of fingernail sized bits um, that are all mixed together with water and then you shovel them onto a table that has water washing across it and the copper is heavier than the than the insulation and the glass so the copper stays behind as as the water washes over it and you have a very clean commodity Um, it's cost effective and and the great thing about it is it's much better for the environment than the way a lot of this stuff used to be recycled which was get a can of gas, pour the gas onto the Christmas tree lights, set them on fire, come back in the morning, and you have a bunch of crusty copper. You know, that's not in anybody's interest. Uh, it leaves behind horrible uh, pollution, you know, laced with dioxins and Lord knows what else. So so it's 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 progress. How much of this recycling
0: that goes on are these sort of, for lack of a better word, homemade devices to help, you know, recyclers get the commodities they want out of this recycling.
3: It really depends on the market. You know, it, I mean, in China, you really do have, uh, because there's such huge volumes of waste emerging within China now, and there's so much demand for raw materials for manufacturing, is you see a level of innovation going on there uh, that's really high. And you see things like these Christmas tree lights, recycling systems, which are an innovation of a type. You know, um, where you have less manufacturing and less demand for the raw materials, you'll see less of this, you know, and you'll see sort of the more uh, simple oftentimes environmentally unsound means of recycling that, you know, rely upon gas cans and and matches. But, you know, the interesting thing is recycling isn't a unique industry in that sense. I mean, we've always had sort of innovation come out of garages and family businesses and and even the auto shredder, which is now a manufactured product made by, you know, some of the world's Mm -hmm biggest heavy equipment manufacturers, companies that make mining equipment, you know, that started out as a jerry-rigged invention in Texas, you know, and there was two families who were trying to figure out a more cost-effective way of recycling cars in the early 1960s instead of setting them on fire. And they both sort of independently developed, you know, home-brewed car shredders, um, and those grew into massive manufacturing businesses with very sophisticated machinery um, that uses all kinds of technologies.
0: One thing that gets contributed when you're doing a clean-out is books. What happens to the
3: books? Well, that was one of the more painful aspects of doing this book, um, is is seeing uh, what happens to books. So the fact of the matter is, we have more books than anybody on the planet can read right now, and we keep generating more of them. And so the question arises, what should happen? I didn't realize I was going to be answering this question until one day I was taken uh, to Yokohama, Japan, and the warehouse and operations of a company called Book Off Corporation, which is the second largest secondhand business in Japan. And as their name suggests, they're very interested in books. Uh, that's how they started out. They do other things as well now, but they wanted to show me their book warehouse. And this warehouse is very unique. If you have a bunch of used books and you're located outside of Yokohama, you can put them in a box and send them to BookOff. And BookOff will this then open up that box and scan them, and they have a constantly updating database of what these are worth and what demand is. And so that's what they do. They will scan them, and if it's not worth anything, they will toss that book into a bin bound for a paper mill. And two-thirds of those books going into that warehouse are bound for the paper mill. And one-third may actually make its way onto shelves. And that's pretty average. That's not unusual to Japan at all. There's just too many, and that's why the prices are so low. So, you know, a book, when it's not wanted anymore, it's recycled, and, you know, hopefully it's turned into a new book.
0: Where would the sources be of the books that get get to book off It's in Japan. There can't be that many books in Japan. There
3: are that many books in Japan. I mean, Japan is, you know, we we now talk a lot about single-use plastics, you know, and single-use, single-use. And here in California, you know, there's a lot of concern over single-use plastics. In Japan, there are things that you could think of as single-use books, particularly manga. You know, the the sort of very unique Japanese comic literature that's wonderful. Um, But they produce a lot of it. And it's essentially single-use literature. They will run millions of copies of these things, and after they've been read, there's absolutely no resale market for them because they're in Japanese, first of all. So you're not going to be able to send them really anywhere outside of Japan. Um, and once you've read them, they're done. And we have we have similar phenomenons, you know, in the United States as well. I mean, we or in Europe. I mean, we have pulpy novels that are essentially single-use. Um, millions and millions are printed. How many more copies of *The Firm* by John? Grisham, you know, do we need? And that's, that's no disrespect to John Grisham. I wish I had his sales, you know, but, but, but it's true. You know, if you think of it in those terms and you look, you go to your average airport bookstore, you know, a lot of that stuff is essentially intended as single use. So it's, it's going to be recycled.
0: I've been speaking with Adam Minter, the author of Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. We'll talk more after a break. The podcast of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word and on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as in other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show, we hear from former USC professor Bob Ladner, the CEO of CV6 Therapeutics in Belfast, Northern Ireland. They've moved their promising cancer research halfway around the world. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Adam Minter. He's a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and his writing focuses on China, technology, and the environment. He's here today with Second Hand, travels in the new global garage sale. What about furniture? There's a lot of furniture that moves around San Francisco, but at some point, somebody's not going to want this furniture.
3: Mm-hmm. And that is a growing problem. Because we have again, if we want to go back to sort of the single use phenomenon over the last few decades we 've really developed sort of single use furniture Now it may be a use that lasts for two years, but it 's or three years, even five years, but it 's single use and specifically i 'm thinking a flat pack um, the stuff you would buy at IKEA or at Target or at Walmart you know sort of this mass market stuff that you build it at home. And if you try and move it in the moving van, it shakes and it falls apart. It can't be moved. And and I... talked to a lot of movers in the course of writing this book and asked them about ikea furniture specifically and they said yeah i mean more often than not it breaks in the course of moving it and so that stuff never hits the thrift store and if you bring an ikea bookshelf to say a goodwill or a salvation army they're not going to be very happy about it because um if it if it walks through their door there's probably cracking already and by the time it walks out the door anybody who buys it knows it's going to be very hard to have it survive the, the trip home in the back seat so that stuff is filling up landfills. And, you know, in 2015, which is the last year for which we have good U.S. government data, about 24 billion pounds of furniture was wasted um, in the United States. It's just gone. Now, there is furniture that does hold up. But what's ironic about it is a lot of it is just not in demand right now. And that's the old oak furniture in the antique business. They call it brown furniture. And for this book, I spent time at an antique mall in Minnesota where the third floor is filled with this gorgeous oak, carpenter-made, handmade furniture. But what they, what the dealers will tell me is nobody wants it anymore. It's out of fashion. You know, young people are renting now they are not buying for all kinds of reasons if you 're renting, you don 't want a five hundred pound oak cabinet that you have to move every two years, yeah you know so so I mean that 's the other side of it. is this wonderful, durable furniture is just out of demand is it 's out of fashion, I should say um, tastes have changed in the nineteen
0: fifties and sixties we learned about planned obsolescence. Mm. People were literally and by this, I mean engineering manufacturing firms were literally building products to fail after a very planned period of time so they could sell you another one. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that in a while, but then I realized there was another trick to that trade, and that's by putting expiration dates on things that might not expire.
3: It's a marvelous way of doing one of two things. Either, you know, eliminating a secondhand market to compete with the new market for your product, or charitably it's a good way to keep yourself away from getting hit with liability claims if something breaks and it's someone's...
0: expired yeah it's
3: expired <laughs> you know I, you know i in in the book I took a look at a specific product the child safety seat that you use in a car a child car seat and those um, if you're a parent i'm a parent I have a four year old and if you 've ever bought a car seat and you go online you know there's lots of people telling you whatever you do don't buy a seat that's expired and I always assume that there were regulations related to this that the us government Must have a law or regulation. And and I found out there is no such law. So I then went back to the manufacturers and I started asking them, on what basis do you impose these expiration dates? Um, Do you talk to the manufacturers of the polymers, you know, and say, how long do you expect these to last in the backseat of a car? And I queried ten of the largest manufacturers of child safety seats in the world. Only two responded to me and and the responses were not very helpful. They were things like decline to comment. Nobody was able to say we were <laughs> we, we ran these tests under arc lights or whatever it is, and it turned out that after six years, a seat had degraded to the point where it could no longer be considered safe, especially compared to a new one. Nobody had the answers and likewise, I went to the one of the largest retailers of car seats in the United States Target and ask them, on what basis are you telling parents in your, because they have a trade-in program, you can trade in your old seat and Target will shred it for you, give you credit on something new. On what basis? They referred me to the manufacturers and manufacturer-supported website um, that said that car seats expire at six years. So it became this very circular thing and I was unable at any point, looking everywhere you could find, you might be able to find this information, somebody willing to say, this is the study, this is the data, this is why Car seats are said to expire at six or ten years. Uh, Eventually, I threw up my hands and went to Sweden. I didn't go there. I contacted people in Sweden because Sweden has very good um, traffic safety regulations. And I contacted the head of uh, safety and sustainability at the Swedish Traffic Administration. She had actually blogged in favor of using expired car seats, you know, old car seats, secondhand car seats years ago. And she sent me to one of their large insurance companies that used to make its own car seat. And they said, after 20, 30 years of looking at our old car seats, nothing's wrong. We see no reason not to use them. So is it a conspiracy to get people to buy more car seats that American North American companies are putting these expiration dates on there? I don't know. They won't answer the question, but it certainly is a convenient uh, way uh, to you know make people think about putting keeping stuff out of the secondhand markets. And you love your children, and that's a great marketing tactic is to terrify parents. You know, there's nothing works better. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I mean, you know, the, if I could terrify
0: parents into listening to Tech Nation, I'd do it.
3: Right. <laughs> you know, but it was one of the reasons why I found it such a compelling example, because I am a parent and I were, before, you know, before I started researching this book, I worried about the expiration date on the seat. It was only when I just, I started questioning it that I said, wait a second, there's something not quite right here.
0: Mexico, Mm -hmm. right next to Mexico on the U.S. side, they have a whole lot of junk Mm -hmm. that is destined for Mexico. How does that economy work?
3: Sure. Well, like so many emerging markets around the world, uh, Mexican consumers want their chance to consume. Um, and so they really have sort of two price points that you can work with. You can you can buy the really cheap stuff that may not last very long, um, a lot of which is made in East Asia, or you can opt for, you know, expensive new goods that are designed and sold into expensive markets that you can't afford. So what bridges this gap is secondhand. Um, and in Mexico, just as in other parts of the world, but especially Mexico, you have an entire industry devoted to going up to American thrift stores along the border states, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California. Um, This industry uh, is designed basically to take that stuff, price it out, move it down into Mexico, and fulfill the consumer desires of Mexican consumers. And one of the most enjoyable bits of reporting that I did for this book was actually following a trader. His job, he created the job, his businesses drive up from Nogales, Mexico, every day and go around the 16 stores in the Goodwill of Southern Arizona system, Mm -hmm. buying primarily shoes. That's his thing. But if he sees anything in there, um, he's going to take it. He buys that stuff, drives it back down to Mexico and sells it to wholesalers, who then their supply chain is all the way down into the deepest Mexico, if you will, especially the poorer communities. And it's an extraordinary business because it benefits both sides. One, uh, Mexican consumers get their hands on good quality American stuff, better than the new stuff that's out on the market. But A point that I—it really started to dawn on me as I was spending time in Tucson—is if you didn't have this trade, um, there would be nowhere, nowhere for a lot of the used stuff in Tucson to go. Um, When you talk to the folks who run Goodwill of Southern Arizona, they will say that upwards of 90% of their uh, customers are coming from that border trade in some form or another. So if you suddenly say block the border, Um, there's a lot of negative consequences to blocking the border that go beyond secondhand. But it would be a crisis uh, for a lot of people in Tucson or in Dallas-Fort Worth or in Austin or in Santa Fe because the customers, the people who buy their used stuff that fills up Goodwills and Salvation Armies would not be there. And so that stuff would be landfill-bound.
0: And Goodwills and Salvation Armies have programs which support communities and societies.
3: Yeah, I I found, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this book was I I wondered what Goodwill was. You know, it's, it's sort of the Kleenex of the thrift industry. We just say, take it to Goodwill, you know, you know take a Kleenex. Um, and, and, but we don't know what it means. And a lot of people think Goodwill is a for-profit entity because they've really improved their stores over the last decade. It's not. It's a nonprofit. Um, and what it does with the money it makes off the used stuff is really focus on employment and job opportunity. In Arizona, um, you know, the toughest cases. So they spend huge resources money and time and employees um helping the toughest cases so these such as uh, juveniles coming out of the juvenile justice system get job skills and get jobs and become productive members of society that's not cheap and that's not easy and there's a lot of handholding they go so far as to go to employers and say look um this is a risk to hire this kid. He's never had a job. He just came out of jail. We'll subsidize his, uh, his salary for a while. Just take him on and give him a chance. Uh, that's what that money goes to.
0: Marie Kondo, the mm-hmm. KonMari method. You can see it on YouTube. You can see it on television. It teaches you how to tidy up. Does it bring you joy? Is she the junkman's friend or the junkman's enemy?
3: Well, I would say uh, she is the junk man's friend because she's encouraging people to take stuff out of their house and theoretically at least bring it to Goodwill. You know, when her her show was hot back in uh, January and February early uh in 2019, um you know, I I called around to some Goodwills to just see, you know, is it, is it making a difference? And they said, "Yes, we're seeing this flood of stuff coming in." And and Goodwill likes to see that flood of stuff because, it, you know, they can then sort through it and find the stuff of value and, and increase their revenue so they can do the good stuff that they do. I mean, that's sort of the irony at the heart of this trade, whether it be recycling or secondhand. It thrives off people throwing away stuff. If people stop throwing away stuff entirely, um, there's no secondhand industry.
0: We have to tell people you just didn't, you know, you didn't get interested because you needed to clean out your garage. You actually come from a junk family.
3: I do. Uh, My roots in junk, if you will, (laughs) uh, date back to the early 20th century when my great-grandfather got off a boat in Galveston, Texas, without education, without English, and without really any marketable skills that we know of. And he was in a bind, so he started doing what you do when you're in a bind, and that is seek out things of value and resell them. And he became what's called a rag picker literally picking rags off the streets, but maybe going door to door, buying people's old clothes, and then selling them to rag cutting operations, textile recyclers. And that grew from a backpack business to a hand cart business to maybe having a truck, eventually made his way up to Minnesota and had a small scrapyard. And some of my earliest memories are being a toddler walking around the scrap metal warehouse, which you should not let your toddlers do. but uh, <laughs> Not OSHA-approved. Yeah, but if it's your junkyard, I guess you can, and uh, those are very happy memories, and my grandmother, who I was very, very, very close to, um, she worked in the yard as well, and she was also um, an antique collector, and so I have very early memories of going to garage sales with her. And and it's sort of the same idea. You're you're going around, you know, whether you're recycling or you're going to garage sales, you're looking for that 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 nugget, you know, amongst the dross. And so she really taught me.
0: There are a lot of junk families.
3: There are. Well, that's the amazing thing about this business. Um, you know, I grew up in, in North America, but one of the most enjoyable aspects of doing what I've done over the last two decades is getting to know the family businesses around the world who do and did the very sorts of things that my family business did. And I always think of them, I don't care where it is or who or what, you know, who's doing it. I always think of them as sort of my brothers and sisters in in scrap and junk.
0: You live in Malaysia. Describe that for us. In fact, tell us where that is. Many people don't know where it is. And how is it different from the U.S. with regard to junk?
3: Sure. Well, Malaysia is in Southeast Asia and it's almost as far as you can go uh, if you want to get away from the U.S. And that's not why we went there. But, um, you know, if I want to fly to the U.S., uh, uh, I, you, you, I have to go through somewhere. There's no direct flights to the U.S. from Malaysia. So, um, you know, go. it's six hours, say, to uh, Japan and then another 13 hours to get to the U.S. So it's a, it's a long ways away. It's south of the equator. It's a uh, uh, it's a tropical nation and it's an emerging market nation. And so um, as a result, there is a thriving secondhand trade. People want to get used goods um because it's it's a it's a cheaper way into the consumer economy and so uh in J- in Malaysia you have um, a thriving for profit second hand trade and in the book i describe um it's very interesting. A, a a department store that's all secondhand stuff, and that department store is actually owned by Book Off Corporation, which we talked about earlier. Japan's second largest uh, used goods retailer, and they have so much stuff in Japan. They said, "Where are we going to go with it?" Well, our population shrinking, Malaysia's and growing. Um, they have big families there. We should open up superstores full of Japanese used goods, and so. That kind of business thrives there, so it's a completely different um, different situation than what we ex- enjoy in these developed countries.
0: Well, I started this interview with a confession, and I have a second confession to make. Okay. This is the only time I've had two confessions in one show. So it's Uh-oh. a real, this is a real gold star day here. When my sons were in grade school, the school had a thrift shop. And for two years I ran the operations mean, we had a manager and employees, and, but I ran the whole thing. It was one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had. The stuff that would come in and yeah. a, what is what was moving around san francisco and the people who came to the store and i was just going to share with you my favorite time was um uh someone went went into the uh uh the dressing room and was trying something on and she came out and she looked in the mirror and she said well that looks pretty good and, you know, and then this gal walks up and says how much are these socks and we went, oh, there's usually a tag on them. Mm-hmm. And the woman in front of the mirror said, those are my socks. I just took them off in the, in the dressing room. So there are many stories yeah. about how, what flows through, how uh, you do it, who wants what, at what time. Very, very fascinating place. It
3: is. I mean, some of the most enjoyable reporting I've done in my entire career was at the goodwill, Southern Arizona, specifically the Houghton store, and what I did was not complicated. I just stood there and watched for hours on end what was coming through the donation door and it's an amazing experience it's it's fun it's sometimes funny, you know people you're giving what you know um, it can be very demoralizing because you see the level of wastefulness Um, and it can be heartbreaking you know because you you do see people giving away the remains of a loved one's material life—you know—you can just tell this needlepoint was important to somebody. You can see it, and so it's—I mean—it's such a rich experience. And I always tell people, and I'm sure Goodwill doesn't appreciate it—you should call the Goodwill of Southern Arizona and ask if you can just stand around the donation door for a couple of days. You know, it'll change your life, and it, it will. Um, but yes, it's amazing, amazing what flows through the doors of these places,
0: and you see history. I remember one. Beautiful it was a big box that came in, but it had it had tissue and it had what it had was two nineteen forties uh silk uh uh what do you say, I guess, nightgowns or penoirs, mm. Clearly had Never been warned what were totally cared for in this, and it was like this is right out of history, yeah, here it
3: is, yeah, so uh our lives really do get told through joke it's true, I mean, and especially in contemporary uh, society where we are all better or worse defined as consumers, and so to some extent, like our personal identity is this assemblage of stuff you know, in brands. And nobody knows that better really than, you know, Facebook and Google who, you know, assemble very precise profiles of us based upon our consumption habits and then sell stuff back to us in a sense based upon it. That's who we are in many respects.
0: Well, Adam, it's such a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Adam Minter. The book is Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. It's published by Bloomsbury Publishing. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. of people each year undergo chemotherapy to fight all types of cancer in the biotech space it's not just about coming up with new therapies it can also be making existing therapies which we have a lot of experience with work even better Former USC professor Bob Ladner is the CEO of CV6 Therapeutics and is also a member of the academic staff at the Center for Cancer Research and Cell Biology at Queen's University, Belfast. Well, Bob, welcome to Tech Nation.
4: Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate being here.
0: You were a professor at the University of Southern California, USC, and you were working on some research that could be commercialized. What were you working on?
4: Well, we're trying to understand how uh, standard of care therapies, how they work, why they fail. And how we can intervene to make them work a lot better, impacting the most broad uh, patient population that are treated for cancer. So at the University of Southern California Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center, we identified a, a critical new drug target, and I had a decision to make in terms of you know how do we help patients in the in the best quickest manner, and part of that decision was to to leave the University of Southern California get investment and find a, a great place to build our business to accelerate the path between discovery and getting this into patients as quickly as possible.
0: Los Angeles is not uh, Los Angeles is not San Francisco and everyone says that's the most expensive place but Los Angeles is not f- far behind if not equivalent to ex- extremely expensive to be there.
4: Indeed, uh, I was on the beaches of Santa Monica's, where I lived, which was a fabulous, le- fabulous lifestyle. Uh, but ultimately, we needed to find a place that was really economical and some place that would be really capital efficient, uh, and provide us with opportunities that just didn't exist in that area. Uh, and so, through a friend of mine, uh, Patrick Johnston, who was the former Vice Chancellor of Queens, we worked in the same. Queens
0: as in New York.
4: Uh, <laughs>
0: queens is in a borough of new york
4: queen's university belfast in northern ireland um and so patty and i as as he was called uh we both have worked in the same area and he suggested that, you know what maybe what we, what we would like to do is get some seed money out of the united states and bring it to northern ireland because it's a capital efficient area and there's a lot of advantages to being there And so I brought my entire research team out of the USC from the beaches of Santa Monica And we all moved to... Bottom uh, of park, eh? Indeed. (laughs) Uh, And moved to uh, Northern Ireland. And many of the cab drivers in Northern Ireland say, why would you do that, right? Uh, It's a rainy place, but uh, it really has been a fantastic journey and it's been a great place to grow our business.
0: So how many members of this team moved to Northern Ireland? So
4: we have four members of our team that came. um, Some of them my senior postdocs out of USC. Uh, we've also hired a few folks out of Northern Ireland, so there's a great uh, base of talent in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, and so that was three, four years ago at this point, and uh, it's been, uh, we've been able to retain everybody. Everybody is very happy. And despite the lifestyle in Santa Monica, which was fabulous, I actually think that my life now is, is improved. It's, it's really a great place to live you were also able to move your professorship
0: and you don't actually do that but you became a professor at Queen's University.
4: Yeah no indeed I'm part of the cancer center there and uh, the beautiful part of Queen's University is that they're very entrepreneurial and so I was able to take a 50 percent position as a research uh, oncologist or scientist uh, and then also also be allowed to be CEO of CV6 Therapeutics. And so, in that regard, it was, they're very flexible in that in that space, and uh, they're very entrepreneurial. They're known, Queens University, to spin out companies very successfully. And so, there is uh, really the ecosystem that exists there for this type of business building.
0: Okay, let's get down to exactly what the business is. What uh, what's the research you are doing now? How do you translate that into a product? Let's talk about that.
4: Yeah, sure. So, as I said, what we did was study how the most widely used standard of care agents. One of those agents is called five-fluorouracil, or five-FU.
0: And that's a standard cancer treatment.
4: It's a standard cancer treatment.
0: Chemo, or
4: it's it's a chemotherapy that most people would call it. But uh, it's been known for it's been around for sixty years, and it's uh, an agent that oncologists trust and know how to use very efficiently. It's used in more than four and a half million patients a year. Uh, globally, so this is a very important drug, and we identified how it works, uh, how do do we overcome drug resistance, and so we have a second target that we've targeted with a new drug uh, that's called CV6168, and we were able to really improve how this drug works in a variety of settings, so it's a very broad-acting cancer therapy. It's not just for colon cancer, but it's colon and breast and lung and a variety of other disease types where uh, we can impact And so when I left the University of Southern California, we had a very early program, and we've, in a very short period of time, with the help of Invest Northern Ireland, which is a government-based agency that helps build the health healthcare economy in Northern Ireland, uh, we now are ready for the clinic. And so we'll be entering our first in human phase 1A clinical trial in Belfast and using the network throughout the rest of the United Kingdom uh, to bring this to patients.
0: Let's remind the listener that Northern Ireland is a part of the UK. So how does that affect your strategy, your startup strategy?
4: The UK has things like the R&D tax credit, which basically gives 8% of your R&D expenditure back to the company. So everything you spend on research
0: and development, 8% of that, you just get back.
4: You just get back. Uh, There's something called the patent box. So there's a major advantage in terms of, uh, you know, the taxation on patents, which is greatly reduced in the United Kingdom versus uh, the United States, for example. And so the other aspect is the corporation taxes is much lower than in the United States. And you know, the U.K. has really strong infrastructure in terms of running clinical trials. And, you know, AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, these are U.K.-based companies, and they have a very uh, highly evolved um, system of or network of experimental cancer medicine uh, sites within the U.K. that help drive early drug development clinical trials. And so we're really able to take a strong advantage of these expert sites uh, to help our drug development efforts in the UK. It's a major advantage for our company. In terms of
0: patents, patents go by nation or groups of nations with agreements. Uh, you probably have to patent this all over the world. How do you do that?
4: Oh, certainly. So um, the patent um, process is one in which, you know, you you will put a provisional patent in either the United States or the United Kingdom, and then you do what's called a PCT, the Patent Cooperative Treaty, and then you go out to other countries around the world. And we're targeting critical markets, manufacturing sites within different countries. These are the types of countries that companies like ours would like to protect um, our intellectual property in.
0: And is that legal expertise all available there?
4: Oh absolutely um, i 've seen no difference from my experience in uh, any of the legal teams any of uh, the, the supporting infrastructure within the u k has been absolutely excellent.
0: I just love this idea of this core group of californians <laughs> or in general in the United States like the most disrespectful
4: <laughs> of yeah.
0: any of them, and no. they moved to Belfast. That's just crazy.
4: <laughs> well, we all got three hours a day back because we don't have to commute anymore on the, the, you know, the 10 freeway in L.A. Um, you know, our, the you re- were
0: commuting to the beach. <laughs> yes, I was going
4: back and forth from downtown L.A. to Santa Monica. And so instead of doing one meeting a day, which a lot of L.A. folk understand that that's all you can pull off, in Northern Ireland, a much smaller environment, I have a 10-minute commute. I don't even own a car anymore on a, on a rail system, and I can take three or four meetings a day. And so I gain a lot more uh, efficiency in that regard. But it's a really lovely place to live, and there's a lot of advantages in that respect.
0: Well, Bob, thank you so much for sharing this experience. And I hope you come back and talk to us. Tell us how everything is progressing.
4: No, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time.
0: Bob Ladner is the CEO of CV6 Therapeutics in Belfast, Northern Ireland. More information is available at CV6T.com. That's CV6T.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Goodt.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.